Can anybody finish this thought? Hey, I just met you, and this is crazy, but here's my number. Okay, see, every single second of your waking life, people are trying to have you memorize inane things. Kids, does anybody here know their memory verse this week? It's not from Carly Rae Jepsen. It's from the Lord God of hosts. Do you know it? Say it. Mr. Coughlin? Awesome. How about a hand? Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. Psalm 63.1. We're going to keep doing that because we want to not only have Carly Ray in our heads, we want God's life-giving words infecting us instead of silly ones. Let's pray. Father, I'm awfully glad that you have not left us to ourselves. I'm awfully glad that you have given us families and a community where we can see the faith embodied, where we can come together and remember that we didn't make these things up, that we're not crazy for believing them. The person sitting in front of us, the, the unshowered one behind us, all of them, we, we, we believe these things together and we're aspiring to believe them because they are our life. We are those who want to hold on to these words of life. I'm asking now that you would give me words, Sunday words, that will be useful to adolescents in this congregation on Tuesday afternoon at school and for college students on Thursday morning when they're in class and for moms and dads when they're at a supper table and for bankers and insurance workers and coaches and teachers when they're at work this week. I pray for Sunday words that will infect and inform and reorient Monday through Saturday lives. Jesus, be the main thing for us. Come do that now. Amen. A story is told, perhaps it is true, of a business school professor who stood before his eager students and he held before them a large mason jar. Some of you know what a mason jar is. If you had the good fortune as I did to eat at Po Folks often when you were a kid, that was the container in which they placed the belly washer or drink. Well, this mason jar was large and it had a, a big opening as a gallon jar. And the professor started his lecture and he put a number of hand-sized stones in that jar, filling it to the top. And then he asked his students to be participatory, is this jar full? The students, looking at it, said, well, yes, no more rocks can fill in. Yes, it is full. And he says, aha, as a clever professor might. And he pulls out from behind his podium some gravel. And he puts the gravel down into the jar. And he shakes the jar so that the gravel fills in. 
the empty spaces and the crevices between these big hand-sized rocks. And then he says to his students, Is the jar now full? Someone's catching on. No, it's not full. Correct, he says. And he pulls out some sand. And he pours the sand in there. Same thing. Fills in smaller grains and gravel. You get the idea. Lastly, he says, do you think this jar is full? They're still on to him. There must be something else he can put in. He pulls out a pitcher of water. He pours the water in. And so now, the water fills the thing. And he says to them, is it full? And they say yes. Now, he asks, as he holds this jar full of hand-sized rocks, gravel in the crevices, sand around that, water all around it, what is the illustration here? What is the moral of the story? What am I trying to depict to you? And one student raised the sand eagerly. Maybe it was a woman. She raised her hand eagerly and said, the point is, no matter how full your schedule is, if you try really hard, you can always fit some more things into it. And he answered like my high school Spanish teacher might have in Espanol. X. Wrong. No, that's not the moral of the story, that if you try really hard, you can always fit some more things into it. He says the point of the illustration is this. If you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. If you don't get the big rocks in first, you will never get them in at all. Conversely, if you get the big rocks in, all kinds of stuff can fit in around it. But if you don't get the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in at all. That's something that I stole from a Mormon. But I think Stephen Covey, he stole it, I think, from C.S. Lewis, who probably stole it from the Bible or else Aristotle. (laughs) But he talks about this principle that governs life that you can't get first things by putting second things first. Auxiliary things, secondary things, things of lesser good, if you put those first in your life, if they become the main thing about your life, you wind up losing them and the first things. A woman, he says, who, who makes her dog the center of her life, she winds up in the end not being able to fully enjoy the dog or any other thing. An alcoholic who makes alcohol the center of his life eventually gets no pleasure from the alcohol, loses his palate, can't take pleasure in much of anything. He loses everything else. The idea is, and Jesus says it more succinctly, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the other things will be added to you as well. The idea is first things. There's certain aspects of your life, and in these passages today that Kyle just read, God is saying certain things like me, my words, my intentions, my wishes for you, my aspirations for you. I must be the big rocks. I must be the boulders in your life, the boulders in your schedule, the boulders that you put in first. I cannot be an add-on. I can't be an accessory that fills out your wardrobe. I must be the main ensemble. He says it this way, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. These are the commands and the decrees and the laws that I'm teaching you today so that you, when you cross into the Jordan and your children and their children may live long, enjoy long life, and may increase greatly. God is saying, you've got to put me as the main thing. I've got to be the main point of your life, the thing that you orient everything else around. You've got to make space for me. If you try, and this is what he warns them about, and we'll get to it in a minute, if you try to make me an add-on, what will happen is, you will get full. And with fullness comes forgetfulness of me. He tells them that they're going to go into the land and things are going to get fat on them. They're going to get fat. And when they get fat, they'll be like the people of Sodom who were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. A sort of lethargy would take over and God would be forgotten. And so God is enjoining these people, please, make space for me. Let me be the main thing. And here's why. So that you may fear the Lord. We've just been looking at the Ten Commandments. Throughout the rest of this book, there will be other ways in concrete, specified ways that affect human relationships and economics and care for the poor and work and rest. Specific ways that you love God. And God is giving all of these things so that people may learn to fear the Lord. And I was thinking about this because God is very concerned in the Scriptures that people fear Him. And I was thinking, how do we get in our noggins what this fear of the Lord is? And I think, maybe we can back into it by looking at something that we're exceptionally good at fearing, like, say, the future. It is my assumption, by a quick calculus here, calculation, that at least 78.62% of the people in here are fearful about something that might happen to them in the future. Is this correct? Is my percentage too low, I hope? I hope my percentage is way too high, but I suspect it's not. Now, think about what happens when you fear the future. Something might happen in the future. It seems significant enough, substantial enough, that you start to let it affect you today. So significant and so substantial might it be that it might begin to govern the things that you read, the things that you listen to, the things that you talk about with other people. It might start to affect your emotions, the things you get angry about or frightened of. It might be the kind of thing you start to teach your children. It might be the kind of thing that informs what you start to do. People right now are fearful and they say things that they have no business saying because they cannot know this. This is the most important election in the history of the planet Earth. Who can know that? What a limited perspective. But people are afraid. There are people deathly afraid. They're deathly afraid that Mitt Romney is going to get elected. They're deathly afraid that, re- that Obama is going to be reelected. They're afraid. And so if you're really good and afraid, you're going to do stuff. 
Something significant. They hold the future in their hands, these men. They don't. But you think they do, so it affects what you read and what you listen to and what you think about. And You want to proselytize other people to your position. You, you think about this stuff. If you, if you fear that in the future you're not going to have enough money, well, then you'll start thinking about money a lot. You'll start reading about money. You'll, it'll affect the way you spend money and acquire money and what you do to get money. If you're fearful of being alone, you're fearful about not having a husband or a wife or fearful that you're going to have to stick with this husband or wife, it will affect what you do if that's kind of the main thing about you. It'll affect what you think and what you do and what you feel. Okay. So we're averse at that. We, I hope, resonate with that. We understand what's going on there. God says, I want you to know these commands of mine. And I want to sort of fill up your community life and your home life so that you can learn to fear me. Let me be such a significant part of your life that it starts to affect what you think about, what you talk about, what you do or don't do, how you feel. What you teach to your kids. That you may fear the Lord. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve Him only. Take oaths in His name. God is after a people who will be so sort of inebriated with His impressions and have His stuff his words, His life, so pushed down and impressed into our inner lives that it starts to reorient the way that we live. And this is an important thing because God is concerned about the kinds of impressions we have. He wants us, for instance, to impress these things on our children. Part of making space for God and fearing God and not the future is that God is wanting us to teach our children and their children, and really the world, that there's one God. And He has a name. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In your NIV, and I think in your other major English translations, you'll see the Lord. And when it's in all capital letters, you know what capital letters are? People still use letters. All capital letters, that means Yahweh. That means when you think about God, it's not just some general conception of monotheism. It's not just that everybody who worships a God is worshiping the same one. No, no, no. In the same way that a man, a good man with a prospect of a healthy marriage in the future would not say, I have married women. I have married girl. No, your wife has a name. And so does your God. Israel, your God has a name. His name is Yahweh. He is the only God. He's the only one that is real. He's the only one worth the time of day. He's the only one who has a claim on your life. All the rest are nothing. The Lord our God, Yahweh, is our God. Yahweh is unique. He's incomparable. He's like Tennessee's receiver, Peerless. They had a receiver named Peerless Price. What a great name is that. So humble. God is incomparable. And he has a name. And we know that he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He's one. And he claims our whole allegiance. And he says, love me with the totality of what you are. 
Let my words and my ways be impressed in you so that they affect everything about what you do. You're going to impress these things on your children. Now, you may not realize it, but we're always in the business of impressing other people. You're all children, parents with children. You're teaching them something all the time. You realize this? There's a great line in... um, Raising Arizona, which if you haven't seen, you should consider yourself filled with major deprivations in your life. But H.I. and Ed, short for Edwina, McDonough have these escaped convicts in their trailer, Gail and Evel Snotes. And to Gail and Evel, Edwina says this, you two are leaving. They've just broken out of jail and they've, they've got a baby at home. You two are leaving. I got nothing against you, but you're wanted by the authorities. And you're a bad influence in this household, in my opinion. And they respond in the most fantastic way. Well, ma'am, we sure didn't mean to influence anybody. And if we did, ma'am, we apologize. We sure didn't mean to influence anybody. But you know, Gail and Evel Snotes and every single one of you, you're influencing people all the time. You're making an impression on people all the time. We, as God's people, are making a cultural impression all the time. See, I mean, uh, Steve Brown, one of my professors, say, you can tell an awful lot about a dog's master by looking at the dog. You realize this? A dog that's well cared for, it's been nurtured and loved and is appreciated in his home when you reach down to pet him. He's not going to cower. He's not going to show his teeth and try to bite your hand off. A dog's been beaten, might. A dog that doesn't know if he's going to get food, might. A dog that doesn't know what's going to happen, might. But a dog that's well-loved and is protected and is fed and cared for is confident and like a golden retriever, like Diggy, God rest his soul. We learn a lot about what people believe about God by the way they act, by the way they think, by the things they do. So I fear, as one person has said, is such a bad apologetic. When we are fearful about the results of elections and we are fearful about what's going to happen in the economy, we are fearful about everything, it doesn't say much about what the God we worship is like, does it? Or does it say that He can't do anything? We don't mean to say to the world, our God is almost as good and almost as strong as Barack Obama. But not quite, unfortunately. The future's in Barack's hands. The future's in Mitt's hands. The future's in the economy's hands. The future's in my getting a good job or the right graduate degree or having the right marriage. No! The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Be preoccupied with Him. He's the sovereign Lord of all creation. He is the one in whom all things hold together. He is before all things. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's what we can say about our God. In Steinbeck's book, East of Eden, after Adam Trask has had his wife give birth to twins and then shoot him and leave. Most of you, even if you have a bad marriage, have not yet been shot by your spouse. 
I do not wish that on anyone. Please don't shoot your spouse. Did you hear that? But he's listless, and he's in a state of despair, and here he is, he's got these two babies, and he's in a state of depression, and he's sitting there, and this wise Irishman named Samuel Hamilton comes to him, and he says to Adam, you're going to have to pretend to be alive. You're going to have to act out being alive for a while until it actually happens. And he says this, you're going to pass something down to those kids, no matter what you do. Or if you do nothing. Even if you let yourself go fallow, the weeds will grow and the brambles. Something will grow. You're going to pass down something whether you realize it or not. You are letting out a scent. You are passing along, transmitting values, beliefs, thoughts. Everywhere you go, we're, we're, we're making an impression. And so God says, in your home, here's your goal. Make space for God. Let His words be something that you orient your life around. Teach them to your kids. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road. Talk about them when you're sitting around the dinner table. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When you're trying to do your homework, think about what does it mean to love God in the way that I do my homework? What does it mean to love God in the way that we handle conflict in our house? What does it mean to love God in the way that I do my business? What does it mean to love God in the way that I do my taxes? What does it mean to love God when it comes to caring for widows and orphans? What does it mean to love God with respect to our money? These are the kinds of things when we're making Him the main thing. When we're thinking about our use of resources, our use of time, our use of heart that ought to be occupying us so that we can impress upon our children, so that we can impress upon the world the reality that there is a God, one, who is our God. And we've made space for Him because He's the main thing about our life. Because God knows if you don't make space for Him, if you don't put first things first, if you don't let God be the main boulder in your life, if you don't learn to fear the Lord and not fear the future, what's going to happen is the fullness of what God gives you is going to lead you to a colossal kind of God forgetfulness. And that's what he says here lastly. When the Lord your God brings you into the land He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land, to give you, give you, God's subsidizing a lot here. Such a socialist. A land with... To give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery... This summer when I was on sabbatical and not with you and therefore not able to comment on any of this, President Obama said, You didn't build that! Oh, and, and Republicans are so excited. But I think, was he accidentally quoting Deuteronomy 6? Nobody thought so. But that's what God tells the Israelites. See, that's the biblical position. It's not the Democratic one or the Republican one. 
It's not that the government is the one that subsidizes and takes care of all the aspects of your life, present and future. And it's not that the individual is responsible to take care of all his life, present and future, and everything resides on the individual. God's perspective is, at least to his Israelites here, and we're the church, we believe that every good gift comes from God. And so he tells these people, you know what you're going to do? You're going to live high on the hog, as they say. You're going to have these bank accounts that you didn't fund. You're going to have these lush, verdant pastures that you didn't sow the seed for. You didn't build that, God's going to say. I did. And I gave it to you. Because I promised things. You're people who live by promise. You're people who live by grace. You're people who live with open hands. That's why I say, open wide your mouths and I will fill them. That's why Paul can call him the God of grace. He gives things. You realize that, right? It's the height of arrogance. In fact, that's what the psalmist says. He says, the wicked... The wicked, they don't think about God in all their thoughts. There is no room for God. We're in danger in a culture where we have a lot of stuff for the stuff to become a main rival to God. For all the good activities we have to become something that roots God out and crowds Him out of the picture where we're not thinking about Him. And then, these things that are meant to be blessings, these things that are meant to cause rejoicing, these things that are meant to humble us, you know, because goodness humbles you when you receive it, right? They actually become causes of great anxiety. And nothing barricades, says screw tape, nothing barricades our minds against the enemy, against God, more than suspense and anxiety. All of a sudden, all these good things God has given you, all these relationships, your, your stuff, your resources, your education, the family you were born in, it can become a cause of pride. It can become a cause of nervousness. I don't know how, how, how I can hold on to all this. Instead of becoming a cause for rejoicing that God has handed these things to you. That God is the one that you're to make space for. That you're not to forget. That you're not to let the fullness cause you to forget. And borrowing from C.S. Lewis, I switched this around a little bit. Here's some ways that you can promote God forgetfulness. Keep your dang earbuds in your ear all the time listening to music. All the time. I mean facetious. That's if you want to forget about God. Spend hours and hours and hours a week voyeuristically checking out every person's life and wants and wishes on Facebook and Pinterest. Work incessantly. Watch Fox News. Watch MSNBC. Keep it tuned into Sports Center all the time. Never turn the TV off. Never be alone. There's a lot about the way that we live that indicates, even by accident, that we just didn't have a plan to keep God central. We didn't, we didn't make space. We didn't put the big rocks first. But I want to commend you because a lot of you have put big rocks first because you came here to worship today. This is why God has given us the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is supposed to, this day of rest, this day of worship, this day of celebration, of reminding ourselves the world rides on God's shoulders, not ours. 
This salvation is a gift of the Lord and so is work and so is rest and so is everything. This Sabbath command is put in place to safeguard the commands against having other gods before God. He doesn't want work to become your God. He doesn't want anything to become more important to you than the one who is everything to us. The one in whom we live and move and have our being. God has literally, not the federal government, and not your parents, and not your job, and not your ingenuity, God has literally subsidized every aspect of your life, including the breath you're borrowing right now, and the ears with which you listen. And He says, don't forget the Lord. Now, I remind you this as I close. The God who says, don't forget me. The God who says, keep my commands for you. Keep my commands, internalize them. Do you remember why he says that? Would people look at us and tend to think that we're the people who want to internalize God's commands because we worship a God who wants us to live long, enjoy long life? That's what he says. I want you to take these commands, Israelites, so that you can enjoy long life. Does the God you worship, the God that you think about, the God that you're trying to submit to, the God you're trying to surrender your life to, do you think of Him as the God who exists to make everything you like either fattening or sinful? Or do you think of Him as the God who wants you to know enjoyment? Because if you believe Him, Moses says these words are for your enjoyment. It's so you can increase. It's so you can flourish. It's so you can have life. It's because He has aspirations for you. Not because He's trying to destroy you. Look at all this I'm skipping. My professor, Steve Brown, tells a story about being a student high school student, a man with no academic aspirations or concern whatsoever. Some of you may be able to relate. And he got back from this teacher an exam. An exam that he had taken. And on that exam was written with a red marker, the letter F, which everybody knows means fantastic. No, it does not mean fantastic. It means failure. It means you are a loser, sir. And he got this test back. His teacher handed it to him and said, as she handed it to him, she started to weep. She didn't cackle with a <laughs> F. She handed him his F and she started to weep and said, Stephen can do so much better than this. Well, he was a little freaked out, as you might imagine. He said, you can bet on my next exam, I aced it. And it wasn't because I suddenly started caring about algebra. It was because I had a teacher who loved me enough to shed tears over my F. You may hear the command... I do. Impress these things on your children. Think about these things in the city. Think about them in your house. Fear the Lord. Don't fear the future. 
you may hear these things and like me think, oh, I'm a failure as a pastor. I'm a failure as a husband. I'm a failure as a dad, as a friend, as a son, as a follower of Jesus. And it's not just because I'm not good at it. It's because I'm bad. There's parts of me that are just not right. And what's so amazing is that this God who wants us to enjoy, this God who has given us His life to impress upon ours that it may come out to others, is the God who wept over our F's and took the F for us. And so the Apostle Paul can spin that out as this, that He died for us that we would no longer live for ourselves but for Him who gave Himself for us. Now we make it our goal to please Him. If you believe this God wants so much more out of your life, He doesn't want your life to be petty. He doesn't want you to be ruled by silly grievances. He doesn't want you to be ruled by fear of the future. He wants you to be ruled by Him in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, who gives abundant life, who weeps over your F's. He wants you to be ruled that way. So that you can show the world what an amazing God He is. Let's pray. And as we're praying, pull out your bulletins, please. First panel. Father, we're about to come to your Lord's table. A way you've given us to remember. A way you've given us to have your life impressed upon ours. We thank you for these gifts and ask that you would set this bread and wine apart from its common use to a holy use, that it would become for us bread from heaven. It would well up to eternal life in us. It would reproduce the character and the desires and the emotions and the will of Jesus in us. And Lord, we know that we have made many F's. The only thing we've gotten an A in is rebellion. Would you please hear us now as we offer our silent prayers of confession as we prepare to receive your assurance of forgiveness. Hear our silent prayers of confession. Now, Lord, would you hear us as we commonly recite this prayer of humble access, which helps us remember what we believe and helps us to prepare our hearts for receiving your good gifts. We do not presume to come to this, your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property it is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen.